Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. We're thankful for your presence. It is good to be back home, and we're very happy to, to be back and to see you again. Uh, we are in the midst of a series of thoughts on salvation. Uh, we're not going to preach about that this morning, though, because the elders have asked me to spend a couple of weeks on leadership and the eldership. And so we'll do that for this week and Lord's will the next week. And so I thought this morning we talk about leadership, some general thoughts, first of all, about what the Bible says relative to that. And then next week, get into some more specifics about the eldership uh, in, in the Lord's church. So this morning, uh, we'll just kind of do that, talk about some things generally the Bible says about leadership and about the way God has designed things and relationships one to another. Let's begin with the question of why, why God gave leadership. Oh, it slipped my mind. Let me go backward just a second. My mother is here visiting, <laughs> and uh, very happy about that, but I'd also... Uh, You'll be happy, too, if you meet her. She's a fantastic woman, just fantastic. Best mother I can, any, anybody could have. Very thankful. Leadership, that's where we are. Why God gave leadership. Uh, when we open up the Bible, I think point number one with regards to that is that God never intended to always have direct contact with man. He would have contact, but it wouldn't be direct. And when we open up the Bible, we can see God's direct engagement and connection to humanity. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them about that sin. In Genesis 4, when Cain sinned, God came to him about that sin. Even about the murder, God addressed Cain about that. In Genesis 6, the whole world gives its way to sin, itself to sin. Genesis 6, 5, and God comes to Noah. This would not always be the way God would interact with man, and you can see that actually after the flood, you can begin to see a marked difference in the way God would desire and engage with humanity. He would do so through representation. In Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bible, begin reading there with me at verse number 1 and note some of these differences. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the second time I'm familiar with that phrase being expressed and that command being given. The first being Genesis 1, of course, where there are only two people and here there are eight people. And so it's a necessary thing. But that's what God says to Noah and his family. He continues and you began to see differences in the way things were pre-flood and post-flood. The very next phrase says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. That was not the case prior to the flood. Every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish, note the next phrase, into your hand they are delivered. Well, the next verse says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. It wasn't that way before the flood. The very next phrase says as much. And as I gave unto you the green plants, I give you everything. Adam and Eve didn't start out eating that way. They ate the herbs, so to the animals. There was no fear. There was no dread. One of the reasons it wouldn't have been a problem living among dinosaurs. There was no fear. There was no dread. They ate plants. They ate plants. Everybody ate plants. It wouldn't have been a problem. That will change after the flood. 
But you shall not eat flesh with this life. That's never changed. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whosoever sheds the blood of man, you'll note the next phrase, by man shall his blood be shed. Cain was afraid of vigilantism. Cain thought, whoever finds me going to kill you. God says, no, but there will be order. There will be law. There will be judgment. There will be representation. If you read Romans 13, it will say repeatedly, he's the servant of God. He's the minister of God. It's ordained by God. The last part of that phrase is also true, or that verse is always true, and that's the reason. Human life is sacred, made in the image of God, and that's what the end of this verse says, for God made man in his own image. To accomplish verse 5 and verse 6, men would have to judge each other. There would then be representative leadership. That's the way God designed it. And every institution that God has created has that dynamic attached to it. The home has that dynamic. The husband represents the Lord. He stands in his stead. When you read Ephesians 5, it takes Christ and the church and the husband and the wife, mirrors them, and says he is as Christ is. That's the way God has designed the home. Same thing's true of government, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Same thing we'll see in Israel, the nation of Israel, and it's the same thing in the church. People will represent God. That is how God then will be with his people. That brings us to point number two. That's why, or at least part of the reasons why, what is the purpose of leadership? The purpose of leadership, best as I can ascertain it from Scripture, and I believe it's greatly supported, is that it is to benefit God's people. Through representative leadership, God would be with his people. His presence, his abilities to, to provide and take care of, he would be with them. God through the leader. You'll notice Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 8. When it came to delivering Israel, God said, I am come down to deliver them. In verse number 10, he says to Moses, come, I will send you. That's the way God then will be with his people. The second benefit to that is that God's word would be given. His people would know his ways. They would know his will. They would not be ignorant of God because God would give his word to the leaders, and the leaders then would give his word to his people. Notice Exodus chapter 20. See an example of that at the very giving of the law. When the law is being given, and coincidentally, as you're turning over there, there are not two laws given at Sinai. I'll just say that for free, although some allege that. There's just one law. What happens at Sinai is the giving of the law is interrupted by the fear of the people. Begin reading at verse 18 and, and see what they say. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. 
Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was, and the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. God talked from heaven. He gave the word to Moses. Scripture in the Old Testament described the law was as written with the finger of God. But we have no problem saying it's the law of Moses. In fact, that's how we often refer to it, the law of Moses or the law. But it's also called the law of God. And while it's called the law of Moses, we understand very well it's God's word given through Moses. You remember the Hebrew writer in Hebrew chapter 10 actually says, he that despised Moses' law died under two or three witnesses. Well, whose law is it? It's God's law through Moses. It's how God would make known his word to his people. Moses, the prophets, the priests, thus saith the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. We talk about Paul's writing. We know it's the Spirit's writing. This is the way God would inform his people. It's also how faith comes. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God would give that word to his leaders. They would then give that to his people. Thirdly, it's how the people's needs would be met. Every leader is to provide something for those he leads. In this way, through the leader, God would be providing for his people. In the case of Moses, the plagues, the sea, the water, the flood, the law, Exodus 14, 26 through 31, the people cry to Moses. Moses cries to God. God parts the sea after Moses' demonstration of faith. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, God will say, you see how I have called you unto myself and how I delivered you and bore you on eagle's wings. I did that. But Moses was the one through whom those provisions and that care was provided. Thirdly, leadership is the way God provides care for his people. And I would urge it's one of the most important features, and maybe everything else that's said could be put under the umbrella of care, of love, of providence for God's people is through this leadership. Exodus chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, these first six verses is significant. The burning bush is one of the more memorable accounts in Scripture, among a lot of memorable accounts. Sometimes, though, and I would just encourage you, if you can, please be in awe of the Scriptures. Be in awe when you read the Scriptures. Go back as if you were reading it for the first time and try to appreciate the scale and gravity of what you're reading. We can become so familiar with the Bible, not that that's a bad thing, it's a very good thing to be so familiar with the Bible, but you could be so familiar that it loses what ought to be awe-inspiring as you read it. Exodus chapter 3 is one of those events. Moses is out in the wilderness. He's out there in the desert. He's out there, and he sees a bush that's burning but not consumed. That should give us just a little bit of pause. We should just say, okay, that's significant because fire destroys things. 
If it's on fire, it should be consumed, but it's not. And that's enough for Moses to get very curious. And so he turns and says, I'll see why this bush is burning but not consumed. And if that wasn't enough, can you imagine when the bush spoke? See, you hadn't read it that way in a long time. It's funny to you now. You try to just let that work through your mind. You're standing in front of a bush. Hey, it was on fire, not consumed. Now it's talking to you. If it didn't have your attention the first time, it sure has it now. And then it says to you, it calls your name. Any bushes you know know your name? It calls you Moses, Moses. And then it tells you, put off your shoes. For the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Best I could imagine that if it were me is I would look down at my feet and the ground. And I might try to ascertain what is significant about this ground. I didn't realize it was holy, but that's the point. And while Moses may be standing on ground he had previously stood on, he is standing now on ground where God's presence is. Man, what God wants us to know is being in his presence is holy. And as best as I can ascertain, nothing has changed about that. To be in the presence of God is a holy occasion and ought to be treated with, with godly respect and awe for the occasion. Nothing about that has changed. What happens next is God introduces himself to Moses as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And while, again, we may be very familiar with that kind of context and that, that phraseology, Moses may have been hearing that for the very first time. It's not exactly the way God always introduced himself. When he talked to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse number 1, God says, I am the Almighty God. Walk thou before me and be perfect. Later, when Isaac is going to be used by God, God will say to Isaac, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham. When Jacob comes on the scene and God will use him, he will say, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. It's now after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Moses is next in line to carry God's work forward, and God says to Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And after this introduction, God tells Moses why he's talking to him. Begin reading with me at verse number 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, I, for I know their, their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land into a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold. The cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, and just in general, when we think about life, the church, other things, we generally begin with ourselves. 
we, we think about what elders should or should not do, decisions they made or should not have made, and what I would have done, and what they should have done, and they didn't ask me, and so forth. We just generally have a way of thinking about ourselves and the way we approach things and the why we think things should happen. When it comes to life, when it comes to our time on this earth, the, the approach to life should be, what does God want? What is God's reasons and what is God's designs? And if we start there, then we focus on Him. Our, our understanding becomes shaped by God then. If we were asked, why did God give leadership? What's the point of it? God's care for His people is the driving force behind providing leadership. There are two very important things that need to be understood by those on both sides. Number one, those who lead must know that they are representing God as they do that. And number two, those who are led should be comforted by the fact that God did this to provide and care for them. Why did God call Moses? One of the things about reading the Bible is, generally speaking, wherever you are, you probably need to go backward because wherever you are had something that probably led to why what you're reading is significant. It's no different here. We started talking about the bush, but look at the events before the bush. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 23. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Then the bush occurs, and it's after the bush that we have the words of verse 7 down to verse number 10. And with that in mind, would you read the text again with me? And this time, let's focus on God and what He says throughout that text with an emphasis on Him. It would read this way. Number one, it would start out, and the Lord said. Now, I'd ask you also, focus on the pronouns. Focus on the personal nature of what's said. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them. Any parents in here who sees affliction of their children wouldn't be concerned. Any parent who have children who heard their cry wouldn't be concerned. Any parent who says, I know their sorrows would go unconcerned. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land unto a good land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the, Can the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now behold, therefore, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have seen their oppression, wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. All of that language leads down to God saying, Come therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, friends, when it's read that way, when God self-describes as hearing their cry, seeing their afflictions, knowing their sorrows. Their cry has come to me, and I've seen the oppression, and now I will send you unto Pharaoh. When it's read that way, friends, it's about God and his care for his people. It brings us to the next point. Leaders then help God accomplish his work. Paul talks about being laborers together with God. That's what's at work and at stake in leaders. Moses didn't go out to the desert on that day to become the leader of the nation. That's not what he went out to do. He went out like it was any other day, likely to feed and tend sheep. But while feeding the sheep, while tending the sheep, he saw a bush burning, not consumed. He drew near, and the bush spoke. And the message ultimately said, go to Egypt and deliver my people. The breakdown looks like this. I, God, will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh so that you, Moses, will bring my God's people, Israel, out of Egypt. Now then, if you were asked, why did God send Moses to Israel, what would you say? These passages make it abundantly clear that leadership, that what God intends in seeing the suffering of his people is that he was going to relieve that through Moses to take care of and provide for Israel. God's care for his people is why God gave leadership. And I would just urge this. Always remember when you're reading the Bible that behind God's actions, wherever you're reading, is ultimately that Christ will come. Moses is going to be an instrument in helping God carry out his plan ultimately to bring the Christ. Leadership is not about Moses. Leadership was about God's love for his people. Number five, leaders are how God solves his people's problems. In every arena of godly leadership, leaders are to be problem solvers and peace providers for God's people because God desires his people to be at peace. He's not pleased when God's people are scattered and shattered. He's not pleased with that. Consider how much of the Scripture is dedicated to sheep and shepherds. Both covenants have this language. Both covenants describe God's people as sheep and God's leaders as shepherds. And in the Old Testament, he is particularly upset with the shepherds who are fleecing the flock 
and destroying the flock. He's very displeased with that. Jesus has all of those interactions with the leaders in Israel, with the way they're treating God's people. Sheep who are lost, according to God, they need to be found. Who's doing the finding? Luke 15 describes a shepherd having a hundred sheep and one leading. That's the way Luke 15 describes it. God wants the sheep found. God desires peace for his people, and leaders are to provide an environment of peace. David was himself a shepherd. He would know. And when David describes God, he is describing God as a shepherd. And how does God shepherd his sheep? That's Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want provisions. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. The green pastures are indicative of provisions made. There is something for me to eat. It's healthy. It's good. It's green pastures. And then he says, still water. There's peace and repose among that pasture. It's said of sheep that they will not eat or drink unless they feel safe and secure. Leaders in Israel and in the church are to provide a place of peace. They are to alleviate problems of God's people. Jethro's counsel to Moses is a very good indication of this. In Exodus chapter 18, in verses 13 to 20, you find this interaction between Jethro and Moses as Jethro watches Moses shepherd, if you will, tend to the nation. And among the things that he observes is, the Bible says the people of Israel came to Moses all day and all night. Why? To present their cases before him so he could judge them. There are issues among the people, and they bring the cases to Moses, the leader. And what does he do? He hears their cases, and he judges them. Jethro observes this. Bible says Jethro watched and told Moses, what you're doing is not good. Now, if you continue, you will wear yourself out. His solution for Moses was to get other men to help you to lighten the load. What's the point of lightening the load for Moses? Ultimately, is to provide solutions for the people's problems. Leadership involves sacrifice. How long was Moses there that day? The Bible says he was there all day and all night. Well, Moses, what about you? I'll be here all day and all night taking care of you. That's how it works. If you turn back to Genesis 31, sometimes the Bible does this. You'll be reading one thing, and then while you're reading that, it will say something so interesting that's not really even a consideration in the present thing that you're reading. So, in Genesis 31, this is the section of Scripture where Jacob has fled Laban. He's run away because of the way Laban has treated him, and now Laban has caught up to Jacob, and they're having this conversation. And Jacob's explaining to Laban why he left and the way he's treated him and what he's done, but Laban is upset with Jacob because he's taken his gods. That's what he says. You did all of this deceitfully, and on top of it, you took my gods. When Jacob hears that, 
he, I almost said he loses it. I don't know if he lost it. But he's upset too. Now you have two angry men talking, and it's what Jacob says in his anger that describes something about shepherding. Read it with me in Genesis 31 and verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Though you have felt all, you have felt all through my goods, what have you found? Now, <laughs> Laban has done a search to find his goods. He didn't know, neither of them did, that Rachel had actually taken them. Nobody knew that. And so this search, can you imagine what you would feel like if your father-in-law had mistreated you over all of these 20 years, and now you finally left, he gets to you, and then he rifles through your stuff saying, I'm going to find what you stole from me? Jacob's, what? Okay, what'd you find? If you found something, bring it out here, show it to everybody, and let us decide. And then Jacob explains, here's our point, verse 38. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts, I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus, I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. What's it like to be a shepherd? That's what it's like. That's what it's like. So when Jethro sees Moses doing this, he says, listen, that's not good. You're going to wear yourself out. These people are not going to get what they need. And so Jacob, Laban, <laughs> Jethro says, back to Exodus 18, 21, what Jethro says to Moses is get help to solve the people's problems. He begins by describing the people you need. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. God has so designed His church similarly. Philippians 1.1, there are bishops and deacons and saints. There's help for elders, to help them alleviate all of the burden that's upon the work. He says this will help them and they will help you. But note the end of that passage. He says if you do this, God will direct you. You will also be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. It is a wonderful blessing to know that leaders were put in place to provide solutions for God's problem, people's problems, and to bring peace to their lives. The same thing can be seen in the church. In Acts chapter 6, the church has its first, well, maybe its first problem. Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira could have been a problem. But for the most part, as you're reading Acts 2, 3, and 4, the church is in great unity and harmony and everything is going well. And in Acts chapter 6, there is a problem. Verse number 1 says, now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing, it's interesting, is it not, 
that everybody wants the church to grow. That's wonderful. We all want that. And generally, we say it in two ways. We say numerically and spiritually, not in that order. We prefer spiritually to numerical. But either way, we want the church to grow. What happens with growth? Sometimes growth brings problems. When did the problems begin? Well, look again at verse number one. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily ministration or serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God and to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves. And you began to read the things that they say, men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procreus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenides, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles and praying, they laid their hands on them. If you were to continue to read, it solved the problem. That's what leaders do. Now, interestingly here, relative to the apostles, they were talking about serving tables. What was happening is people were selling their goods. We read that in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. They had all things common. They were selling their goods, and they were bringing it and laying it at the apostles' feet. Well, now distribution of those goods were being made for those in need. The apostles are saying to the people, we can't do that. It's not that we can't do it. It's that we have something else to do. This charge... Look you out from among yourselves, able men, faithful men, men who fear God will put them in discharge. There were faithful men who could do this. No one could do what the apostles were tasked to do. The apostles had a ministry given to them by God, by Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. They were to be ambassadors of the word. They were to preach the word. They had that. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Nobody else could do that. There were only 12. And so they say, get men to do this, and we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word. It's how God solves His people's problems. Representative leadership is God's design, and it's designed ultimately across every relationship we sustain. It begins in the home in Genesis 2. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 2. God designed it that way. And then it's in the government, Genesis 9, Romans 13, describes those who bear the sword as being that ordained of God and that he is a minister of God for good. Ideally, he is to provide something for God's people, to punish the wicked and protect the righteous. The home is to provide something for God's children or God's people. The parents are to provide for their children, ultimately all things, but education in God himself, Deuteronomy 6. And then the church has leaders. God did that by design, and they represent him. Next week, Lord's will, we'll talk more specifically about the eldership in the local congregation. But I thought these things would be useful to discuss relative to leadership in general and what God is doing and how leadership is designed by God. 
it is God's desire that his people be taken care of. And I don't know of anything more important and more of a higher calling than those individuals who shepherd God's people. And so I would urge, and we would all urge you to pray for our present elders and for those men who will stand in and begin to uh, function in this role. Pray for them and let's continue to do what you have been doing and that is support the eldership and live in harmony in God's kingdom. It might be the case that you're not a member of the Lord's body, and if that is the case, then we would invite you, yea, urge you to become a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. We're not asking you to join our church. We're asking you to allow the Lord to save you through his blood. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is, John 8, 24. The Bible teaches that we all have to repent. We have to change our hearts and our minds and then change the course of our life, and we do that through repentance, Luke 13, 3. If we don't, we'll perish. We have to be and willing to confess the name of Jesus. We quite literally, we say the same thing. Jesus said he was the Son of God. We agree. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We confess his name, and then we get immersed in water, buried with him in baptism, Romans 6, 3 through and 5. 1 Peter 2 describes it as being born again, purifying our souls. We need to do that in order to be saved. If you haven't, we beg you to do that this morning. If you are his child and you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to him, please come home. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.